Greetings, building science enthusiasts, and welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Humid Climate Conference. Back in 2015, the Austin chapter of Passive House Alliance US was thinking about how to get more attention to the FIAS Plus 2015 standard in humid climates. And so the thought emerged, what if we put on a conference? I'm proud to tell you that this is an unmissable conference. It's a unique gathering of the best building science minds who are ready to talk seriously about passive house and humid climates. This event is entirely volunteer organized, supported by Passive House Institute US, and sponsored by some of the best product manufacturers and industry consultants in the country. And it's sold out in its first try, but it's happening again this year, May 21st and 22nd, with a great speaker lineup. We're talking Joe Stebrick, Lou Harriman, Richard Corsi, Matthew Tanteri, and the list literally goes on and on and on. Find out more at humidclimateconference.org. Early bird tickets are limited and they're selling quickly, so don't miss out and be left wondering. Register today. That's humidclimateconference.org for tickets. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Welcome to this. Uh, okay. Oh, welcome to the building science to the building science podcast. 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 Welcome to the building science podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. It's recording, and I'm gonna go ahead and start. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast, listeners. This is Miguel here. I'm sitting here with a good friend and colleague, Kimberly Llewellyn, who is a performance construction manager at Mitsubishi Electric US, and she's also a CPHC. Yeah, that's very exciting. Congratulations. And uh, fun fact, she actually used to work at Positive Energy. So this is like having, it's like bringing the family back home. (laughs) Uh, And today we're going to talk about something that we've discussed before, but with a little bit different perspective in mind. We're talking about the idea that if you design around people, that a good building will follow. And in the past episodes that we've discussed this topic, we've really focused and honed in on the notion of the occupant, the owner of the building who's going to live there and their family being sort of the center, the the crux, the centerpiece of that process. But today we're going to talk a little bit about the people involved in delivering that. And what is it that we, how is it that we value those people and how are they actually behaving in the context of a project team who's in charge of delivering the home in the first place? So Kimberly, you just delivered a wonderful talk here at the ASHRAE um, and AHR Expo in Chicago. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, this subject. Okay. First of all, thank you very much, Miguel. I'm happy to be here and be talking to you all. You know, I love and deeply respect the work that you do. And thank you. Thank you for for bringing up this topic because um, I think this is the next piece in the puzzle for us to figure out. And what I mean by that is, it's my perspective that over the last um, ten years or so looks like the industry has really done a pretty good job at embracing the idea of integrated project delivery, IPD. Um, It's become almost an expectation that that is how um, projects will proceed and will be conducted, okay? So 
what are the indicators of that? We are spending more time in the design phase. We're spending more time in the de design phase. We're spending more money in the design phase. And we've added line items to our budgets for consultants that were never there before. The question that I posed during the talk, and this is one that's just hanging out in my mind, is um, why do we still see this prescriptive box checking um, approach to our buildings? If we know we need to integrate, how is it that we end up with projects that are doing integrated design and um, are going for really ambitious building certifications? How are we ending up with these things that are they're much easier to show on a screen? But you know, I had an example of a roof that had um, looked like ten-year-old construction. It was new construction. Um, the, there was an inch and a half of standing water on on this brand new roof, and they had installed the dra drains. Check. We installed the drains. We installed the scupper directly over an outdoor unit for a heat pump. Um, but the water is never going to get to that drain until it reaches about three, three inches of standing water. Um, that's a project that had a lot of eyes on it and a lot of talent on it in the early stages. So how, how is it that we ended up there? And so this is all framing, <laughs> framing my answer. This is giving the context. Um, and what I propose is that maybe we have an empty seat at the table, the design table, that we need to consider filling. And that that seat has got to be filled by someone who has the actual know-how, who has the field experience. So not somebody who has the piece of paper that says they went to school for that. And, and not necessarily manufacturers can do go a long way to contributing to an early design phase, but I'm talking about the guys in the field who actually do the work and who have been doing the work for 20, 30 years. Yeah, and it seems like there are a lot of, there's a lot of exploitation in that world right now. There's a lot of uh, labor crews who are seen as interchangeable and then, and thus treated that way as well. And that's hugely problematic because the bar for a accomplishment is actually set so low and the accountability is not held within this larger context yeah. of we're going to do this together, we're going to get this done. It's seen as, well, I pass the liability on to that subcrew right. and that's what you're getting. And hopefully we'll be able to cover it up enough that nobody will ever call us about it. What do you think the obstacles are to sort of changing the paradigm in which subs are exploited and uh, operating in this machinery that is actually not supportive of the project. So, so I'm going to say the first obstacle that we have. So, I'll I'll lay out the obstacles first, and then, and then I'll suggest maybe some things we could do about it. So, one of them is fear. You know, which is not surprising. <laughs> um, fear motivates us in a lot of ways we're not aware of, and in this case, it's um, fear of litigation. So. Um, people are afraid of being blamed mm. for something not working right, which right. is really understandable. But if we, if you know, what we're doing with our construction contracts is that we've we've baked that fear into our process, mm -hmm. and um, we point to other parties in terms of accountability so that, you know, you, there is literally language mm -hmm. um, that, that is indemnification language where we are, which means point that accountability elsewhere. It's not me. Mm -hmm. And everybody else will be held liable for this, but not me. Mm -hmm. And until we change that, you know, we've got, we're gonna, it's going to be an up, uphill battle. 
there's a lot to say about contracts, and we're actually working with AIA National, as well as a couple of construction lawyers in Austin, to make an episode specifically about the new uh, integrated project delivery contracts that the AIA redoes every 10 years or so. So stay tuned for that, listeners. It's going to be a really exciting episode. Excellent. I'm excited. I, I will be listening. <laughs> and so, so another another um, hurdle that we've got is is a. I'm gonna say this. I think it's a societal and cultural bias that we have toward four-year educational programs, mm-hmm. um, higher education, and against vocational or technical training. And and what's more, vocational or technical trade as a. Um, as a career path, as a respected and valued career path within sure. our society. Um, and so we see that bearing out um, in the number of high school credits that are, are being um, completed. So high school students are enrolling in less and less technical training. There are programs that still exist, but the credits are declining every year. We also are seeing that even as with that trend, as those, those credits are declining, it's other technical training programs that are flourishing, like computer programming mm-hmm. and healthcare. So, what that means for the construction portion of that, the electrical, the mechanical, it, is that it's it's in a deep decline. And concurrently, we are we have increasing demand for construction labor. Mm-hmm. So big disconnect there um and what is what is the american dream what is the american dream um i'm gonna say that if i just you know made a big generalization here two of the cornerstones would be own a house and go to college reverse that go to college and own a house Mm -hmm. and that everybody should um, do that and have that opportunity. And I'm not speaking against that, but when we say college, we mean four-year degree. Sure. And we are telling our kids from a very early age that they got to go to college, and we mean a four-year college. But when you look at the statistics, success rates of four, four-year college students, the dropout rate's almost 50%, 45%. And students on average are walking away from four-year degrees with at least $40,000 in debt. And that total debt number adds up to $1.4 trillion, which is 10% of the whole publicly held debt. So this is big. And what I want to point our attention to is this is a money-making machine, okay? So there might be other motivations at work that are not actually about the education of our children and about their success as they move into um, the, the working population. Absolutely. And there are, you know, in other parts of the world, there are models where vocational paths are more readily presented and offered as you can definitely do this. This is a respected way to, and it's crucial for infrastructure. Um, you know, the internet of things is fascinating and it is absolutely changing the shape of how we think about space and how we understand it in a a more data intensive way. But that doesn't change the fact that there needs to be someone to construct and put together the space in the first place. And so where is the bridge, right? How do we actually marry those two worlds in a way that's really productive and meaningful to society. Absolutely. And how do we maybe how do we maybe romanticize the trades a little because we've romanticized the idea of mm-hmm. having everything be easy. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, field work by nature of, of what it is, is laborious. It's mm. hard. <laughs> it's not easy. So, so we've got some contradictions and mm. messaging that we need to figure out. Like, mm-hmm. how, how do we do that? Right. You know, I've, I, this is a little bit off topic, but, but maybe not really. You know, we, where we live in Austin and in several other places, um, like St. Augustine, Florida, like you see, I've, you see this trend of craft um, cocktails and bars popping up where there are, there are young people who are really into learning the trade of mixology. Mixology. Yeah. It has a new name <laughs> even, right? Uh-huh. And it's been, and, and a lot of these guys and gals, they dress the part mm-hmm. and they are well studied and they have taken seriously this skill, which a few years ago, like was not on the map. Mm-hmm. And so I ask myself, can we do that with plumbers and electricians? Mm-hmm. Like what, what would it, what, how could we do that? How can we bring the respect back to that trade mm-hmm. from the outside and from the inside? How can we do that? So, you know, I'm, I, I, in, in the presentation, I, it wasn't easy to give this. Mm-hmm. It was uncomfortable because not data and facts, you know. I mean, I have labor statistics and, and some numbers like that. Mm-hmm. But this is harder to address because this is about, it's about people and it's about a part of people that we don't really know that much about, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so much, I mean, we have an episode out on the podcast with James Gepner, specifically about behavior change and and particularly applying sort of the models of encouraging behavior change that we have available to us now to really help people rethink about how they value a well-built home, right? But there's so much more at play. In order for the entire circle to sort of come to fruition, those same models need to be applied to the the pieces of that puzzle that actually make the home exist in order That's to right, be purchased in the first place. You know, what what are your thoughts about the the varying degrees and levels of how we actually change that narrative? What is what are the practical means by which we can start exploring how to make it a more seem a more noble profession to be an yeah. installer uh, or a plumber, for example? So three steps, training or education, mm-hmm. engagement, and compensation. Mm. I think those are the three elements that, that, that we have to figure out. I'll say those one more time for everyone. Yeah. So training, engagement, and compensation. So for the training piece, I, I encourage anybody who's interested to go do some research on what, what are your Votech, what are your community colleges, who are they, and what are they doing? And if are you in a position to connect somehow, to connect those training programs to projects? Because um, when I was in, at IBS just a week and a half ago, I had a group from Florida Technical College come up to me, and Professor Rob, who was um, one of the professors in their HVAC division, wanted to talk shop. And which I was very honored that he, you know, he came <laughs> over and got into it with me. So um, I asked him, you know, I said, so what are your apprenticeship programs like? Because that's, I think, the field experience is key, a key part of education. And he said, well, he said, um, it's, ne- it's, it's near impossible for us to get apprenticeships going with HVAC contractors because the liability for them is just too high. Mm-hmm. So I started talking to a couple of our area managers about, well, could we 
What about a manufacturer? Like, is that something we could do? Like, could we connect our service group to that? So, so that's a piece of the training. Like, what can we do to get students in there, um, get students into training, encourage them, and, and show them that this is actually a respected career path? And the next stage of it is engagement, and that has to do with the process that you were just talking about. I would suggest, and I'm just coming up with this, you know, more or less on the fly, but I would suggest that we probably need a line item in our budgets for input from skilled trades at the design phase, even if they're not the ones who end up on the job because, you know, sometimes a GC hasn't been figured out, you know, in design phase. You need to identify, we all need to identify those people who have those field skills that are the child of of labor, of field work, of many years of it, hundreds of projects. These people exist, and yet those are the, when you talk about exploitative, you know, I, I use that word very cautiously, and yet I have, I have several people in my life who have these, like, actual fields, real-world experience decades behind them, and they routinely get called for advice, like, hey, can you, I got this situation, what do you think? That's a little exploitative to me, actually. And, and I think because, and it happens because we haven't fully acknowledged that contribution, mm-hmm. that that knowledge only comes from, you don't get a degree for that. You don't mm-hmm. get a piece of paper. You don't get letters after your name for that kind of work. And so we have to figure out a different way to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. Um, that quote, you know, the Vitruvius slash Socrates quote that I made about, like, like, wouldn't it be that I read at the presentation? Wouldn't it be nice if, if people had windows on their breasts so that we could see what they're made of? And he meant both personality-wise, vice and virtue, but also what are the knowledge and skills? So, so it's not easy because people can talk good talks and people can make it sound like they know stuff they don't. But I, I, I would put forth that we you, you can you can discern real um, real skill real. Absolutely. And to that end, you know, we, we advocate for HVAC installers to be involved in the early stages of the design process. And we look at their involvement as such a crucial piece of feedback for us, because if we design a system that is not buildable, that is out of the realm of possibility, that's a huge problem because we've just introduced a costly (laughs) predicament for that project team. And by taking that feedback and taking it seriously and actually advocating for them to get like the, not only the space, but to get them at the table to say, yeah, we, this is pretty realistic. We can, we can see this working. And they know that because they've done so many. And it really does oftentimes require someone who's not the lowest bidder in the project. And that's part of that reality of like, yeah. we don't really value that compensation. So maybe speak a little more to that. Okay. So, so what I think that we're, what I think we're both speaking to is, is restructuring mm. the process a little bit, right? Like, like defining, defining the the empty seat and saying we need somebody with this skill set mm-hmm. to sit here. Um, so that's that's budget and that's that's a process change. You're here. We can do it. Mm-hmm. We can absolutely do it. I've seen it done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've done it. Um, but but to be honest, I don't always do it. Correct. And that pull to to sit back into our default mode, which is oh my gosh, everything's moving so fast, and I don't have time, and I can't convince the owner to spend the money. And, uh, 
we have to quiet all of those voices and remind ourselves mm -hmm. that we're trying to do something different here. So we got got to reframe. Absolutely. Maybe for our listeners who aren't necessarily uh, in that decision-making role or even on a project team, yeah. what's a way that they can sort of practically affect maybe the perception of how, like, what does it mean to be a tradesperson? Who are the tradespeople in my life? What can we, what can we leave with them that sort of points to that? So it's such a great question, and I think it's the point because we can really only change ourselves, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that's where it's got to start. We have to start with ourselves. So I put a slide of my two sons up on the screen, 10 and 11, and, um, you know, I, I publicly admitted my own bias. You know, when somebody, if somebody asks me, oh, so are you, are you encouraging your sons to take technical training classes in high school? I'm like, well, that had not occurred to me, right? Mm -hmm. That I'm part of the problem. And wow, so okay. I, I, need to, I need to look at that. That's one thing. And then what you just pointed to, you know, we all have, we all have skilled trades in our lives. I'm willing to bet most of us do. Mm -hmm. Talking more to those people and asking them what their perspectives are yeah. and bringing them into these conversations, not leaving it till it's too late. Like, let's engage. Here, here. And fun fact for you listeners, uh, those little boys that you heard were actually the voices of our intro song for a long time. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. So you've probably heard them many times. <laughs> well, Kimberly, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate you taking the time, and it's really good to see you again. And uh, thank you all so much for listening. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. We'll see you next time. <laughs>